0: Okay, hello everyone. So, hi. (laughs) We're um, continuing our series looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. We call it 1 Corinthians. And we've been characterising the Corinthian church as a church that needs to grow up. Okay. We've been saying that this is a church that is kind of stuck in spiritual adolescence. Its uh, development is retarded and it's become this kind of uh, perpetual teenager. It's a tragic (laughs) picture, isn't it? A perpetual teenager. But this is the way we've been characterising the church. They're typified by a kind of um, spiritual exuberance, which isn't bad in itself, obviously. Um, But it's meaning that they are Arrogance and they look down on each other, which means they're fighting and bickering with each other. And Paul's um, saying to this church what every parent knows they need to say to their teenager in this situation. He's saying, Look, you need to grow up. You think you're mature and sophisticated, but actually, your bickering, your arrogance is the very sign that you're immature. And you're naive. So that's Paul's basic message to the Corinthian church. He does it really wonderfully, really gently. Um, But that's what he's saying. Another sign of the Corinthians' immaturity was the way they tended to kind of uncritically absorb the kind of way of thinking of the surrounding culture. Okay, so they, um, rather than what, what it was meant to be, that the, the kind of spirit of, of the church was going out into Corinth, rather than the church influencing the Corinthians, the, Corinth, the spirit of Corinth was coming into the church. And it was messing them up. And nowhere is this seen more dramatically than in the Corinthian view of sex. And that's what we're looking at today. So basically what we're seeing today is that Paul is giving this Corinthian church, stuck in adolescence, a bit of a sex education lesson. So let me read the passage and then we'll try and get into it. So I'm going to read um, from chapter 6, verse 12, then I'll skip a bit. And then um, I'll read into chapter 7 up to about verse 17. I might... Um, just paraphrase a few bits, or, or, or kind of retranslate a few bits which which aren't clear. Okay, sorry, verse thirteen: Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Should I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Flee, therefore, from sexual immorality. In chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. That is better to say, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a better translation. But since there is so much immorality among you, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A a wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not, must not divorce him, for the unbelieving, wife has been sanctified through, sorry, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her unbelieving husband. Therefore, otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances." God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Okay, we'll finish there. So, it's an interesting passage, isn't it? And there's some really tricky bits which... And some of these tricky bits I'm just going to gloss over, so I'm, I'm sorry about that. But I want us to get the kind of main um, the main thrust of it, so that's what we're going to be focusing on. So I remember quite clearly my first sex education lesson. Who doesn't? Um, in it, we were sat down as, I think, probably, as I was in primary school, probably nine or ten-year-olds, and we were made to watch... This remarkable video where this kind of apparently quite normal family who uh, we saw wake up in the morning and brush their teeth and read the newspaper and have breakfast. We watched them do this. And it was all very normal except for one fact. They did all these things completely naked. Now, in retrospect, I... Uh, can kind of understand why they were showing us this. They wanted us to kind of spot the differences between the genders and, and, across, and across over the course of development. But at the time, the point was completely lost on me because I remember leaning across to my friend and asking him, do your family walk around the house naked? <laughs> and he, he said to me, yeah, don't yours. <laughs> And I said, yeah, of course. (laughs) Now, I was lying, and I'm pretty sure he was lying as well. But we didn't want to seem strange in front of each other. We were presented with this apparently normal family walking around naked. It appeared to be the norm, and we didn't want to be the odd ones out. There was a pressure, even at this stage, to conform. And that pressure only gets stronger as we get older, isn't it? The pressure to conform, not just the pressure not to seem the odd one out. Usually the pressure is a lot more subtle than that. It comes from the kind of drip feeding of a way of thinking that our culture presents us with that changes the way we view things, that changes the way we act. And because of that we conform, we become like those around us. And in a really famous passage in the New Testament, in his book of Romans, um, Paul, where he's just laid out in um, wonderful detail and with great power, the great Christian hope that we have in God, in Christ. He then says at the turning point of the letter, he says, in view of God's mercy, do not be conformed any longer to the ways of this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. Do not start looking and living like the world, but be transformed. How? How do we change? How do we not be like we were, but how do we become different the way God wants us to be? He says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by thinking about each other, about our world, about sex in a different way, in a new way. That's what Paul's calling us to do and that's what we're doing here. We're seeking to have our minds renewed, to think differently about sex. And we do this very definitely in view of God's mercy. This is how we do it. I went went out with a friend the other day and he's my age and he's the first one of my friends um, to get married and then walk away from his wife, he found someone else. And I was, it was the first time I'd seen him since I found he, he, he left his wife. And it was really hard to talk to him because there was no point in the conversation where he was able or willing to acknowledge that he'd done anything wrong. Several times, in fact, he criticised his wife as letting him down in some way. And that's kind of inevitable, because if you start to say to yourself, I've done something really bad, I'm a bad person, what do you do with that? There's real pressure to protect ourselves. The only way we can is by thinking about these things, by perhaps acknowledging that we've done something wrong in this area, by thinking about these things in view of God's mercy. In chapter 6, just before the section we read, Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Harsh. But then listen to what he says. And that is what some of you were, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's mercy. Paul says that is what you were. And let's just make clear about this. What he's saying is you might, you might feel like someone in this list I've referred to. You might act like someone in this list i referred to. But that is not what you are anymore. God has washed you clean. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, you shall be made as white as snow. You are washed. You are sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means you're special now. You're God's own. You belong to him. And you are justified. We don't need to self-justify ourselves anymore. We don't need to hide from our sin because God has dealt with it on the cross. He has made we who are wicked righteous. That's what justified means. He has made us just. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is God's mercy to us. This is why we can think about these things and, and and be really honest and open about these things because we can do it in view of God's mercy. Okay, so that's all by way of caveats and we haven't even got on to the passage yet. So let's have a think. How were, first of all, the Corinthians being conformed to their world? How was their thinking being conformed to their surrounding culture? Well, we see the Corinthians' view in two slogans that Paul quotes at the beginning of each of these sections. Okay? The first one was in verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. So what does this mean? This means, this is the view in Corinth, that sex is just an appetite. Okay? So when you're hungry, you eat. When you feel sexy, you sex. That's the view in Corinth. It's just an appetite. It's nothing more than that. And this bit, but God will destroy them both, is the kind of Greek way of thinking about the human body and about all of the kind of physical and material stuff in our world, that is just temporary, it's just an illusion, and therefore it's of no significance. So what they're thinking is, my body doesn't really matter, and therefore what I do with my body doesn't really matter. It's what I do with my soul. That's what matters. That's that way of thinking, okay? And it led to probably mainly the men in the church going to prostitutes and saying, it really doesn't matter what I do. It's just an appetite I'm satisfying. It's of no more significance than eating a hamburger. But Paul said, no. God raised our Lord Jesus from the dead body and all, and God will raise your body from the dead also. And when you take your members of Christ when you take your members and, and, and become one with the prostitute, you're taking Christ there with you. Your body now belongs to Jesus. Not just your soul, your body, the whole lot of you. And your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that, that was the first view, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But the second view, and there's another view, and we see this in chapter seven. And it's where it says, it is good for a man not to marry. Um, but actually, what it's, what the, the literal translation is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's saying it's good for a man not to have sex. So this was the other view. One view said, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. This view says, you shouldn't have sex at all. You shouldn't touch a woman. And what this was leading to was people in the church abstaining from sex in marriage, It was leading to them um, even annulling their marriages and saying, we're not going to be married anymore because it's much more spiritual to be single than it is to be married. Because basically, sex is dirty. That's the view. And you see, even though they they result in radically different um, ways of acting, the underlying idea was basically the same. The body is nothing. The body is dirty. The material stuff is horrible and yucky. Sex is all about hormones and body fluids and erections. How can that be spiritual? But what Paul's saying here is pretty radical. So this is what we're going to see. And the first thing, the first point I want us to see, I wonder if I've got the, um, I haven't got the pointer. Um, Could you move on to the first point? Thank you first point that Paul wants us to see is that sex is not dirty. Sex is not dirty. And Paul is really emphatic about this. So just let me turn um, you to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, because it's really clear what he says here. Paul is emphatic, such teachings that the body is dirty and unspiritual are to be absolutely rejected by Christians. So chapter 4 of of 1 Timothy, verse 2, he says, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Everything, sex, hormones, body fluids, the whole lot is created by God. God invented sex and therefore it is good. So we can't say it's not spiritual, we can't say it doesn't matter. The Bible shows us that when God created, He created out of nothing. He created by His word. He was limited by nothing except His imagination. It wasn't like He had some, a load of matter that He had to kind of work with and make the best out of that He could. No, He made it up. He made it all up and He said, let it be. So when God created sex, this was exactly what He planned and it is good. Now, of course, we can make sex dirty. And we do, don't we? But the way to see God's commands about sex, is when he says flee sexual immorality, is not to protect us from sex. No, sex is good. It's to protect sex from us. In our culture, sex is at the same time everything and nothing. It's everywhere. It's used to sell Deodorant is used to sell razors. There are no limits on our sex. Any, any attempt to impose limits is seen as restrictive and, 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 and a way of uh, repressing people. But God's intended sex to be this powerful force that you focus on a single person. Someone likened God's plan for sex as, as like the Niagara Falls and his rules that he gives us conform sex and cause the kind of power of sex to rush through these, these rocks that are restricting its movement. It's meant to be this powerful thing you focus on a single other person. But when you remove those restrictions, sex becomes like the Mississippi Delta. There's nothing to hold it back and it spreads out everywhere and it becomes th- thin and muddy and messy, and gross, but, but God did not create sex to be that way. Sex is not dirty that 's paul 's basis in all that he says next. so at this point, we have um, the people who say, I can do what I want with my body the what we 'll call the um and call them the pagans. And on the other hand, we've got the prudes who say sex is dirty, we don't want to do anything. Um, the pagans at this point say, yeah, great, sex is good, I knew that all along. And the prudes say, yuck. But then Paul's next point Sex is not dirty, sex is, if you can have the next slide up, think, our duty. And at this point, everyone says, yuck. Pagans and prudes alike. Sex is not dirty, sex is our duty. Now that jars a bit, doesn't it? That's not exactly the stuff of Mills and Boone. Sex is duty. Okay, so let's look at what Paul says first, because this really is what he's saying. Verse 2, But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband Pauls presenting sex as an obligation we have husband to wife wife to husband he goes on the wife's body does not belong to her alone in fact it says the wife's body does not belong to her the NIV is a little bit coy there but to her husband and in the same way the husband does not belong to the husband's body does not belong to him but to his wife do not deprive each other Do not deprive each other. So we're obliged to give our bodies to each other. Then Paul says, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. Then he says, I say this as a concession. Now, for a long time in church history, this idea of concession people assume Paul was talking about sex. But he's not. He's really not. The concession that Paul's giving here is this abstinence from sex. The concession is not sex. The concession is no sex. He's saying to the Corinthian church, if you really want to be so super spiritual that you abstain from sex and you devote yourselves to prayer, okay, I'll let you do that as a concession. But then come together again because sex is your duty. Okay, so what do we do with this? Sex as duty. And why does this jar with us so much? Why does this sound so yuck to us? Could it be that we are conforming in some way to our age? Why does God's word jar with us in this way? So let us think a bit more about Paul's view of sex. In chapter 6, Paul talks about sex outside of marriage. That's what he's talking about when he says sexual immorality. Sexual immorality for Paul was sex outside of marriage. And he takes this specific example of of going to sleep with a prostitute. Now, why is going to sleep with a prostitute wrong? Why is going to sleep with a prostitute wrong? Well, probably intuitively... What we say is sleeping with a prostitute is wrong because it's not about love, it's about money. It's kind of inauthentic. It's having sex for the wrong reasons. But Paul gives quite a different reason. It's not because that's not true, but that's not the fundamental reason that Paul gives. Look what Paul says. He says... Do you know, uh, sorry, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. And that he's quoting Genesis. And that's the same reason that Jesus gives for not divorcing. Paul quotes Jesus later in the passage, saying, a man must not divorce his wife. And a wife must not divorce his husband. And when Jesus said that, he says, because a man will leave his father and mother and go to be with his wife, and they will become one flesh. And that is why divorce is wrong. So the reason you should not sleep with a prostitute is the same reason you should not divorce. What's going on here? What does it mean, becoming one flesh? And I wanted to see that this is an unprecedentedly high view of sex, far from demeaning sex in this passage. Paul is giving us an astonishingly high view of sex. One um, commentator said this, far from devaluing sex, Paul here is doing the very opposite. Paul was far ahead of first century cultural assumptions in perceiving the sexual act as one of self-commitment which deeply involves the entire person, not merely body parts, sex is an act of self commitment which deeply involves the entire person, not merely body parts. Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be full giving to what of one 's entire self of to the one to whom we belong. Sex is a symbol, a celebration, expression of whole person oneness. Sex, for the Christian, is not an act of self-expression or an act of self-satisfaction. It is an act of self-giving. And Paul's saying you must not, you must not give your body without giving the whole of you to the person you're with. Put it another way, he's saying you must not become physically intimate and vulnerable with someone without becoming physic or without becoming vulnerable and intimate in the whole of your life spiritually, emotionally, legally, economically. Sex is about giving your whole self. And so when we sleep with a prostitute, what we're doing is lying. We're saying, I'm giving you my body, but I'm holding myself back. And, and where sex is meant to be an expression of self-giving, of giving your whole self, what you're doing is lying not just to the person you're with, but to yourself. And you're destroying your ability to give yourself to another. That, for Paul, is why sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, is wrong, Because it divorces your body from the whole of the rest of you. It's also, therefore, why divorce is spoken against so strongly in the Bible. Sex is, the purpose of sex, therefore, is to become one flesh, to kind of become a complete um, personal union. Sex creates deep intimacy and oneness and communion between two people. And in the Bible, it's not just a matter of emotion, it's not just about how you feel. It's about promise. When you give yourself to someone, you're giving your whole self, and you're saying, "I'm giving you now, not just because of how I feel, but I'm giving my whole future to you. I am now giving myself to you in every sense. That's what we do when we get married, isn't it? We say, "All that I am, I give all that I am, I, I give to you, all that I have, I share with you." And we do this as a promise. God knows that when we enter into a relationship with someone, he's not so unrealistic to think that mere emotion can serve as the basis for it. God knows that human emotions come and go. There needs to be something binding. And so God requires a binding public and legal covenant as the context, as the kind of infrastructure for intimacy. It's far easier to make yourself vulnerable and intimate with someone if you know they're not going to sleep with someone the next night. Marriage is a covenant. It says, I am for you. All I am is for you. And this is why it needs to be protected. So that's why the Bible is so strong against divorce. And it's also why God and why Paul says sex is a duty. Just as covenant, this kind of act of commitment, deep personal commitment, um, is necessary for sex, so sex is necessary for covenant. Just as covenant is necessary for sex, so sex is necessary for covenant. What we did just 10 minutes ago, where we shared the Lord's Supper, is a symbol of covenant. When God makes covenant with his people, he promises himself to them. He says, I am yours. He gives himself to us. That's what was happening in this this meal. We're celebrating the fact that God is giving himself to us in Christ. And when we drink the wine and we eat the bread, we're accepting God for ourselves. And what you're doing though is not just it's not just a kind of one off covenant you make in the past. You keep on repeating it and reminding yourself of it, and that's what the Lord's Supper is. And the Lord's Supper is like sex. That you never expect anyone to say that in church. But that's that's what he's saying. When you have sex, you're reinitiating the covenant you made when you got married. You're acting it out, you're saying, I'm giving all I am to you. I'm giving all I am to you. You see that. The wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband. The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but to his wife. Now this isn't divorce from feelings. It's really not. Some people say that love is not a feeling, it's a verb. But that's not true. Love really is a feeling. But sex itself fosters that feeling. And the Bible says that we are to cherish our spouse. When I got married, I had, a, I had a cousin, and his his marriage, his first marriage had previously failed. Um, and, and he came up to me, he, he just got remarried, and after I got married, he came up to me after the ceremony, and he took my hand, and he wouldn't let it go, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes, it was quite embarrassing, and he said, John, cherish her. Cherish her, John. And it's a great thing to say. My duty as a husband is to cherish my wife, to celebrate her, to love her. And sex helps me do that. Sex is not about self-satisfaction or self-fulfillment. It's about self-giving. Now, so we've had two things so far. We've had sex is not dirty, it's our duty. The second thing we've seen is that sex is not petty. Sex is profound. It involves giving of the whole self to another. When, Paul, when Jesus says, a man must not divorce his wife, he says to her, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And that's basically what I think. Um, I'm just, this is just a note to explain these slightly confusing verses in 12 to 16. This is what Paul's saying here. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him for the unbelieving wife. So a husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise your children be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What Paul's saying is even in this situation where there is an unbelieving wife and a believing husband, in the Corinthian church this was seen as a monstrosity, because um, sex is dirty, and it's even more dirty if it's with a non-Christian. But Paul's saying no, sex is not dirty. Sex is holy. And he's saying here, God has brought these two people together, one two becoming one. Jesus said, "What God has brought together, let no man separate." And in that sense, it's sanctified. God has set these two people apart. Therefore, a husband must not divorce his wife, even if it's um, a believing or husband and an unbelieving wife, or vice versa. Okay, that's that note there. So these two things. Sex is not dirty, it's our duty, sex is not petty, it's profound. Can you bring that little next point up? Finally, sex, uh, last, last two points please as well, thank you. Sex is not ultimate, it points to God. So this is the very last point. The thing we've seen is that se- the Christian view of sex is the most profound, the highest view of sex that the world's ever had. And yet what's remarkable, and we're seeing this more next week, but what's remarkable is even though sex is not dirty, even though sex is so profound, Paul says you can go your whole life without it. He's saying you don't need to have sex. Now, in Paul's day, that was pretty radical because in those days, the way you kind of ensured your security in life and you, and you had significance in life was by having children. We see that in the Bible, this obsession with having an heir to carry on your line. So without sex, you can't have your heir. So that was a big deal then, but it's a big deal now as well, isn't it? We're told that sex as self-fulfillment, if we're going to be a complete whole person, we need to find our match and have sex. But Paul says no. Paul says sex is completely optional. You can go your whole life without it. This is what he says here. He says, I wish that all men were as I am, single that is, but each man has his own gift from God. Uh, One has this gift, another has that. Christianity has the highest view of sex, but Paul says you can live your whole life without it, and that is completely viable and good and 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 something we should see as a gift. Why? Because sex is not ultimate. It points us to Jesus the desire for intimacy and oneness that we feel is ultimately there to point us to Jesus. So in marriage, when we have sex and we joy one another, what we're doing is getting a taste of the joy that we will have when we are with God. And if we're not married, and if we long for that oneness and that intimacy that sex promises, we're to realise that we shouldn't focus that longing on a future spouse, but we should focus it on our Lord Jesus. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, so I'm not going to dwell on that point. So we've seen that Christianity helps us think about sex in a new way. Sex isn't dirty. Sex is our duty because it is a profound statement of our giving of ourselves to another. We've seen that it's like what God does to us. He gives himself to us. And as we celebrate communion, we're to give ourselves to God. I'm going to finish there. Let's pray.